It's the Life of Gem Live video podcast. This is season three, episode two. Season three, episode two. And I'm here with Linal. Okay, I'm going to say this right. Hadripwala. And she'll correct me if I got that wrong. And she's amazing. She used to be my professor at Lona. She helped me hone my voice. She's an acclaimed writer. She's the author of numerous books of poetry and prose. And most importantly, the founder of the Unicorn Authors Club. I'm going to read her bio and then bring her in. I'm so honored. I call this episode Finding Your Inner Creative, Your Unicorn. And that's why I wore my unicorn shirt. This is going to be exciting, inspirational, and informative. So, Mina, whose pronouns are she and they, has been coaching authors since the 2009 publication of their first book, Leaving India, My Family's Journey from Five Villages to Five Continents. You have to get this book, everyone. It was called Incomparable by Alice Walker, searingly honest by the Washington Post. And it won numerous awards, including the Pan USA Award, an Asian American Writers Workshop Award, a Lambda Literary Award, and get this, a California Book Award. Minal is also the author of a poetry collection, which is just sublime and outstanding, called Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment. As well, look at that, as well as a travel guidebook called Moon Fiji. In 2010 and 2011, they spent a year as a Fulbright Nehru Senior Scholar in Mumbai, then moved to Bangalore for six years. And while in India, they edited a groundbreaking anthology titled Out, Stories from the New Queer India. And they founded a co- they co-founded a poetry press called the Great Indian Poetry Collective, which published, get this, nine books by emerging poets. As a journalist, she was most recently an editor-at-large at Zocalo Public Square during the first year of the pandemic. She started her career as an intern reporter researcher at Time Magazine. In the 1990s, Manal ran the Sunday Perspective section of the San Jose Mercury News. A turning point came in 2000 when Minal was awarded a year-long National Arts Journalism Program Fellowship at Columbia University. She enjoyed a practicum with Jessica Hagdorn's Dog Eaters production at the Public Theater. She took the J School's renowned book seminar where she wrote a proposal that resulted in a six-figure contract with a major publisher. Minal spent seven years researching and writing the book, which became Leaving India traveling the world to interview more than 75 members of her extended family. And people, if you want to write a memoir, this is the book to read. I mean, it's just epic. It's her magnum opus. The writing was often difficult. And in hindsight, those seven years were an intensive study of craft, writer's block, internalized oppression, and how to develop one's own supportive writing community. Since publishing Leaving India to Critical Acclaim, Minal has turned their knowledge and editorial ex- expertise towards supporting other writers as a coach and as a teacher. Welcome. I'm so honored to have you. Yay. 
Thank you so much. And I'm so happy to be here talking with you after all these years. Um, thank you for that really kind introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just your resume is just, I mean, you're the kind of coach that everyone needs. And, you know, I've recently had some experience hiring coaches, talking to coaches, and it's hard to find good ones. And I'm just so pleased that you've started your collective. But let, let's start out this way, if you don't mind, if you don't mind reading some patches, passages from your work, um, however long you want, seven, 10 minutes, whatever, and just let people hear your voice. It's so distinctive. It's so beautiful, lovely, and true. So I'm going to put the camera on you. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I thought that I would read from a new uh, work that I am uh, putting together. And you can tell by my voice, I'm a little nervous, actually. But I think it's good for us as writers to um, to stretch and to um, to share work in progress as well uh, because sometimes I think it's uh, we can sort of look at the things we've done and feel both proud of them but also a little detached from them and uh, the work that I'm writing now is always the work that's the most alive for me. So I'm working on a manuscript of poems about uh, unicorns and uh, particularly the unicorns of the Indus Valley from uh, the civilization that no longer exists and has a language that is also no one has translated. Um, and so some of what I'm doing is attempting my own translations of uh, some of the scripts that are found with these beautiful hundreds of unicorn images that have come out of this 5,000 year old uh, civilization that archaeologists have been digging up for the last hundred years or so. So um, I'll start with uh, the quote that opens the book, um, uh, the book that's in progress. And this quote is from uh, a person named Tesius who lived in Greece in 416 BCE. And he, um, he wrote a catalog of animals of the world and he said, there are in India certain wild asses with white bodies, dark red heads, dark blue eyes, and a horn on the forehead about a foot and a half in length. This animal is exceedingly swift and powerful, so that no creature, neither the horse nor any other, can overtake it. So this is the first description in text that we have of unicorns. Uh, which I find really exciting. And the images from the Indus Valley are even older than that uh, by about 2000 years. Um, so here's a poem that is in the voice of a unicorn. It's called The Path. When we get there, you'll see each genius flowing forth. The girl who sorts candies by color only at Easter murmuring, mm -hmm the boy who still believes in communism. All your questions will be answered in unicorn country, rendering this text superflu superfluous. Still, I write, because we have some miles to go until the radiant border, and I do not wish you to lose heart. Without heart, you cannot enter the high green land, no matter how bravely you have crossed the wastes. Mere survival is not enough, though it's hard enough to scratch your way from scrub to scrub, panting, 
despite your parched lips, despite the thorns and termite wounds in your thighs. Don't be grim, for you must believe in me, beast, fabled horn, razzmatazz, but more than that, in you, in the tender bead you carry, bead of cork and rice, bead of plasma and sweat, in which the world is refracted and the cliffs fall away, and everyone you were gives way to who you will be. So that's a poem in the voice of the unicorn in this manuscript. Um, and it toggles between there's some unicorn voices and some human voices and even some um, machine and bureaucracy voices. Um, I think I'll read another poem in the, in the voice of the unicorn um, before switching over to a human voice. So the unicorn poem is called Probability. I am the needle in a bottle of hay, weaving ropes of sand and turnips blood. According to game theory, I'm likely to exist in a coolie's foreskin on a bottle blue moon at the end of the abacus. When you catch the wind in a net, when you win at rouge et noir and devil's bones, I will come to you with implicit eyes and all the small hairs of your insufficient pelt will begin to calypso. Under a pineapple sky to barcarole and blues, I will feed you delicacies of 10,000 worlds. I will let my humors melt into yours and at cocklight I will offer you this choice. Go home and get ordinary happy or ease your loneliness, join me, disappear. So I imagine the unicorns uh, issuing these kind of cryptic invitations um, and then the humans having these uh, kind of poignant memories and moments. Um, and so this one is from a human point of view. Um, when I was when I was a child, I was really into unicorns, and then I sort of abandoned them for many years <laughs> and picked them up again as an adult, as a much older adult. The ex-girl begins to remember that riff. They called it fur, so we would think of cats and flanks for horses and horn for trumpets or rhinoceri or high school jazz band boys in scratchy polyester, barely mustaching, reeking of testosterone and hope. The first boy who held my hand played soprano sax. I jammed scratch and sniff stickers in drawers, now crammed with lingerie and whips. I lost track of that creature filled with grace notes formed of gleam, not ordinary, or even disco shine, but what electrons spark in each other as they pass, what arcs among the seven million suns, what jazz, I mean real jazz, would be if I had had ears and not just eyes to see it. So I think I'll stop there. Uh, that might be enough of unicorn poems for everyone. And um, 
Thank you. Oh, I'm so like, I got a little emotional because I think that sense of what you said right in between when you were reading the poems about when you were a child, you were obsessed with unicorns and then you put it aside. And it's almost like the unicorn is us as the creative, the dreamer as a child. And we put aside these childish things, but th that's where the magic is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we kind of, uh, I, I will tell a little story if you don't mind about yeah. how I started re-entering uh, this world. So when I, when I finished my first book, um, Leaving India, um, I was really pretty burnt out on writing. It was, it took me seven years to write it. Um, it was hard. It was about my family. I had a lot of doubt. It was also my first book. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I felt like I should know what I was doing because I had this book contract and people were waiting for it. And, um, and so when I finally did finish uh, with the help of amazing writing groups and friends and uh, coaches, um, a few different coaches until I found the person who really, really did help me uh, quite a lot. I I wasn't really sure what to do as a writer. You know, it was kind of all of a sudden this big blank space that had filled up all of my hours and all of my brain. And um, And so I was living in San Francisco at the time. So naturally I went to a tarot reader <laughs> and, uh, and yes oh, of course because that's what we do right mm -hmm. and um and they told me that um that I needed to only do writing that was magical to me so I started thinking about well what even is that and kind of trying to tap into my younger self and what I what I used to like and what I might like to write about so one of the things that came up in that process was unicorns and I started writing a few uh, little poems. Um, this was in 2009 wow. and I was really lucky to have a residency at that time at Hedgebrook. Um, mm -hmm. and Hedgebrook is this amazing place up in Washington State off the coast of Seattle on Whidbey Island um, and I was there with a few other writers and I shared these poems and I said, you know, I think this sequence is kind of done. And they were like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> we wow. have questions. <laughs> and so they sent me on an adventure uh, to do some research. And that's when uh, I remember so vividly Googling on the one internet computer that was available to us at that time. <laughs> because it was a very off the grid kind of residency. Um, and for the first time seeing these images of these 5,000 year old unicorns from the India-Pakistan border and just thinking, oh, I didn't know that the oldest unicorn images in the world are actually from my home, uh, my ancestral homeland. And I thought, on the one hand, I thought, oh, I've just finished this big ancestor project. That's the last thing I wanna do. And then on the other hand, I felt, Oh, the unicorns are calling me. I've got, to know. <laughs> I've got to go deep into this. So that's kind of where it all uh, started or restarted for me. That's so interesting. And I, I noticed you have a unicorn in the background and they're brown. And yes. I love that because, you know, we always see the white unicorn. I could, yes. I, even, I the only shirts I could find are white unicorns, but I love the brown unicorn. Absolutely. This is my friend Monique. Um, <laughs> she's also my assistant coach. And um, there is a, a place uh, that sells them called 
the Black Unicorn Shop. Um, I'm always buying people gifts from there. So mm -hmm. I encourage folks to check it out because yeah. they're amazing. And they have many shades and also hairstyles and oops. Oops, sorry, poor Monique. Monique. Um, <laughs> it's okay, you can just sit in my lap. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, with the little Afro puffs or yeah. light skin, dark skin. So they're amazing anyway. Well, that idea too, <laughs> of th that idea too of play. Like writing is work, yes, and we're going to talk about how your Unicorn Authors Club really does hone in on this is, a, you know, work, but that it can also be fun, right? Yes, it, yeah. and it is fun, right? Because we're, those of us who are writers, we're choosing it. We're, mm -hmm. you know, no one's, no one's like threatening us, like you must write or else. Right. Um, but uh, sometimes it's so easy to get into the grind culture and capitalism, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, our creative work is product. And I do believe we should be paid. Don't get me wrong. But I also have to say that I have a day job. So I'm really lucky that I don't make my writing support me, even though I wish it could. But I think that has allowed me to really just do the work I want to do there and early morning, evenings, weekends. And, uh, you know, but I do think there's this issue and we can talk about this. The inner finding whatever it is that kind of your most ashamed of for me is and putting that at the center of your writing like me being a high school dropout which I used to never talk mm -hmm. about when I brought that story forward and then intersected it with my career as a public defender that's where I found my magic right that was kind of the yeah. unicorn it was that little piece of something that I resisted you know and then found the magic and your story is so beautiful. And I remember mm -hmm. how hard you, you know, worked as a writer to mm -hmm. and how much you wrestled with it along the way in that first uh, workshop. Well, the first time you and I met, not, yeah. I don't know if it was your first workshop, but. Um, it was the, one of the early ones. That was like yeah. more than a decade ago. Yeah. And I see we have some friends in the chat from that workshop too. Yeah. Grace Yay. is here. Hi, Grace. She's so talk about leaving India, um, your book that was published in 2009 to critical acclaim more than a decade ago. How did that germinate? I mean, I know that you wanted to write this book about your family. Did you ever anticipate that it was going to be the mammoth undertaking that it was? I mean, my book took me 15 years and it's not even a, probably a third of what leaving India is, you know? Yeah. Um, no, it just it takes time to digest your own experience. I'm actually, I'm reading this um, beautiful book that uh, they sent me an advanced copy of, and it's called Letters to Writers of Color, oh, wow. Letters to a Writer of Color. Um, and it's an anthology of essays. And there's, I'm in the middle of this beautiful essay by um, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who's an amazing writer. And her essay is called On Trauma. And she really gets into like kind of the nuts and bolts of how to how to write about trauma and, and for many of us the trauma that we're writing about is very present in our first book because that's usually the thing that you know are we're like grappling <laughs> with in our life yeah. as well and growing up uh around and using the writing to process um and also intergenerational trauma can be part of that as well. And so I think for me, the process of leaving India was first just uh, realizing that it was going to be hard. It took me a long time, to, like maybe even two years to 
accept that and to accept that it was going to be hard and that I needed help. Um, I had come to it as a journalist. So with my journalist hat on, I had written a book proposal um, at Columbia in this amazing book seminar and uh, sold the book proposal. And I had proposed that I would take a year to research it and a year to write it. And that to me in my naivete seemed like plenty. And they said, sure. <laughs> and, and so I took a year, I researched it, that all went well. And then I sat down to write it. Um, and I found that I just didn't even know what to do. Um, and that I had so many emotions coming up and so many uh, dead ends and so much possibility, even though I did have actually a very tight outline because of the book proposal. Um, it just took a long time to wrap myself around all of it, um, all of the stories and to understand how to write through the fact that in each of the interviews, I did interviews with every member of my family wow. who talked to me, which ended up being about 75 people. And um, for each person, I asked them about their moment of migration. And mm -hmm. in my family, most of the migrations were chosen migrations. And that said, there were often very complicated family and economic dynamics around them. Um, so we didn't have the kind of, you know, overt trauma that folks might have from refugee situations or, you know, war or right. other kinds of big dramatic occurrences um, and violence um, other than domestic violence. Um, but there were still these massive upheavals that people went through, a lot of alienation and loss, um, a lot of separation and so on. And so even at that level, um, I was kind of filtering and processing a lot of people's experience and also trying to reassemble the experience of people who had passed away, who were not available wow. to interview and, um, and putting that together with the historical material that I was also researching because I was interested in not just the personal causes for people's migrations, but also politically, why were certain countries were open to Indians at certain times in history, others were closed. So there were there was always a combination of personal factors and socioeconomic political factors that, um, that led to each migration that was in the book. And so assembling all of that, um, just also craft-wise and in terms of the timeline and the history and all of that, just it just took a long time. And so at the point where I started to realize I needed help is when the book project actually started moving. Um, and I ended up having an amazing coach in Berkeley, the writer, Susan Griffin, who had oh, written. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, she's incredible. Um, and she had written exactly the kind of combination of intimate and uh, political history that I was really interested in. So um, so she was just, uh, I was so lucky to find her. No, and, and, and what I love about what we're talking about is that everyone assumes that you start out writing a book and you know exactly where it's going and that we control it. And I would say quite the contrary. I wrote my my book in standalone pieces that I later integrated into a full-length memoir, and I had to take out all the repetition. It was a nightmare. Mm, Not the way yeah. to do it, but it got done. So, you know, it's interesting because you say, you know, you didn't know what to do once you published your book even, that you were this writer, right? 
but mm-hmm. there is no there there. I don't think you ever really feel like you've made it or despite any success that it always feels like, like you can't catch it. Right. That's yeah. I mean, because the thing is that we're also creative people and ambitious mm-hmm. people in a certain way. So it's, you know, I think there are some writers who, um, and I envy them who yeah. find a formula and then they go, and then they're, <laughs> you know, there, there are definitely writers who can do an outline and write according to that outline or who find their genre and then they can just like, um, create books in their genre over and over yeah. and they're, they're really, um, great for that. And some of them are my favorites cause there's really reliable too, as a fan and as a reader. But, um, I think so many of us, we have so many stories we want to tell and yep. subjects we're interested in. And we're also interested, I think, as writers of color and immigrant writers, especially, um, and also queer writers, especially, I think there is a polyvocal nature of which mm. with which we experience the world and which we want to bring into our work. Um, so like with, with leaving India, I didn't want to just have it be, and I had, I did have a literary agent who said to me, you know, why don't you just take out all these other people and tell your story as a memoir? Mm. And, and she said, uh, and if you do that, you know, as a kind of bicultural lesbian story, I can make you the voice of your generation. And I said, Oh God, no, <laughs> the last thing I would want to be. Um, but also I think that is a really, um, uh, a particular way of wanting to tell a narrative mm-hmm. and a dominant mainstream way of being interested mm-hmm. in the strong I character um, to the exclusion of all other points of view. Right. And I think many of us want to bring in other points of view. And it was really important to me that each chapter in Leaving India, that the people that it was about could relate to it, the the living people, that they could see their story um, and see a truth about their own story that either they had given a gift to me or that maybe they didn't even know yet themselves. They didn't know some of these larger political things that were happening. Um, and then it it showed them something about their own story. Um, but, but I would have never wanted to write that book in a way that the people uh, who were the subjects of it would have felt alienated from it. Right. And it's so easy to, um, and I have this theory about memoirists and why so many writers of color fictionalize their stories mm-hmm. is it's because of the outside pressure that I had myself when I found a, when a publisher that I really wanted and they mm-hmm. wanted me to change my memoir into like a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. And there is a little, you know, maybe 1% autofiction in my book. Anyways, I love the idea of the unreliable narrator, but I really was like, no, I know what I want this book to look like. And that format may not exist. And that's okay. Like, I I really think it's important how you talk about being a writer of color. Like we might have a specific idea of how we want to do this. And we just need to stay true to that. Don't let the dominant Mm -hmm. narrative and the, like the agent, and not that they have bad intentions. They don't. They have no right. They have really great intentions. I mean, they mm-hmm. want to. I think, especially now, we're in a we're in such a different moment now, um, and I do think that there are a lot of amazing agents and editors and people yeah. in the publishing industry. I mean, you know, none of them are are like getting wealthy on the backs of writers. Right. Like they work <laughs> they work really hard, and they, um, you know, and they are well intentioned in terms of wanting to bring out 
voices and now a diversity of voices. And at the same time, um, I always try to make sure that I'm centering the writer's own expertise and the mm. writer's own claiming and owning of their own story. Um, and that as so that's why partly why I love working as a coach independently rather than yeah. say a professor or at a university or an editor at a publish house publishing house is that I work for the writer and I work ah. with the writer. I don't work for any institution or any other outside agenda. So it's not my um, it's not really my role to figure out what the market wants and how you can fit your story to that. It's my role to make sure that what's happening in your writing is what you want and what you're going to mm. be satisfied with. And then when that feels solid, then that's the moment to approach the market and to figure out now what is the language that we use to communicate to the market what that is. 100%. 100%. And that's what every writer needs is that person behind them that's kind of pushing them to be true to themselves. I want to talk about before we get into the Unicorn Authors Club, yeah. you know, your 2014 poetry collection, Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment was so moving. It was mystical. There was all this myth in it. It was so beautifully done. It has mm -hmm. a lot to say, as all your work does, about home, about family, about culture, about sexuality. And there's that poem called Anger Fish. And there's mm -hmm. a line that you say, I was raised without the fish as some children are raised without candy or time. No one in my family spoke of it as no one spoke then of cities or queers. Mm -hmm. Talk about how your poetry collection is different as far as it's poetry versus nonfiction, but that you're still challenging this dominant narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny because after that book came out, um, one of the um, poets who kindly reviewed it uh, said, oh, this is a really powerful connection about collection about anger. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, is it about anger? <laughs> and then I, I went through and I, I thought, oh, yes, I can see why <laughs> you would think that. Um, and I remember uh, one of the things it, it I wrote that more or less. Uh, during the same time that I was writing uh, Leaving India. Some some mm. parts of it were before, some parts were after, but a lot of it was during that same period and was processing some of the same uh, material and experience in a different way. And um, and I remember, uh, I remember during, so one of the things that I did during those years is that I became quite a serious uh, meditator and mm. Zen student and um, and also a more dedicated yoga practitioner um, than I have ever been <laughs> before or since uh, because <laughs> those were the things that were really keeping me um, stable enough to write mm. during that time. And I remember my Zen teacher who uh, was this lovely uh, person of color um, I remember being at a retreat with her and a group of students. Um, and I said, you know, I'm writing this book and I don't want it to be um, filled with my anger toward my family. Um, and she said, well, have you sat meditation long enough to burn through your anger? 
And I was like, I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> I have a deadline. <laughs> um, that but, would take me years and years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And I think it's part of, it's not, I, I love my family. They're not terrible. <laughs> They're wonderful. And, um, and we live in such um, a certain kind of time when families, one of the roles of families is to enforce the rules mm. of the larger, the rules and guidelines of the larger society. And right. So it is natural that many of us chafe under those rules and restrictions, and um, and so these binary categories that our parents yeah, were raised under, you know, absolutely, and, and that the, we we internalized ourselves at times. Yes, and the structures of patriarchy, and particularly for those of us who come from, um, you know, more than one culture or in my case, from one culture, raised in another culture, trying to figure out how to survive in both, to mm -hmm. assimilate uh, to some extent to both, or where it was possible to rebel against both, um, and how to be an individual, but still have a community, all of that, um, that is kind of the meat of our uh, teenage and years and 20s and 30s. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so I think a lot of that material came through in Bountiful Instructions for Enlightenment, which is obviously a, a kind of ironic title um, right. of me myself seeking some kind of instruction, some kind <laughs> of path. <laughs> well, and then you came out with that anthology that you curated and edited it called Out Stories from the New Queer India. And what I loved about your introduction in it is that you, you explain that you travel back to India and you meet these queer women in this group and they're out everyone's out and times have kind of changed since what you remember and you know it's it, it gave me this sense of hope yeah it was you know there was a window of hope um mm -hmm. in at the time that we were working on that book and it was a very collective enterprise um with a small press based in Mumbai and mm. people from the, the community nationally who contributed and um, and worked on it and um, and there was that window of time um, around 2011 or so when things were open because of a, a ruling by the Supreme Court of India that um, that was uh, that basically overturned the British Empire's um, illegalization of sodomy and homosexuality. Okay. Um, and then, and that lasted for a few years and then it constricted. There was another uh. court ruling that overturned it. And now um, India is under, unfortunately, quite a, uh, is in quite a difficult situation because um, there is a lot of restriction on the press, on writers, on uh, freedom of speech, on dissent of any kind, and um, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's it's really a hard time for minority communities there, particularly uh, Muslim, Christian, and Dalit communities are um, are suffering a lot of repression, which um, which means that for LGBTQ people, um, it's you know it's also constricted, and I don't know that that book. I don't think we could have done that book now. Wow. Um, 
in the way that we did it uh, with so much sort of joy and glee. Uh, there are people though putting together, of course, uh, new books and other kinds of writing and um, and culture and even films and events. And, um, but the mood is different. That, that I think yeah. that window of jubilation has passed. Well, hopefully it'll go back because what I've realized recently with all the progress we've made in America is that it does go back and forth. That for mm. every step we take forward, we get this far right push back. Mm. Um, and right now with mass incarceration policies, there's a lot of new laws that came out that are very good in California. But for every new law that comes out, we get this pushback and then you worry that it's going to go even further back. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I live in Texas yeah. where you take two steps forward and we take two steps back mm -hmm. over here. <laughs> mm -hmm. What part of Texas do you live in? I'm in Dallas now. Oh, I used to live in Houston. I, yeah. You know, there's part, there are progressive parts of Texas. A lot of people don't know that, but the majority is not. And yeah. the state as a whole is not, obviously, even though they are turning a little bit more Democrat, hopefully. Um, but Thanks let's to all the Californians moving here. <laughs> I know, right? We all need to move there and take it over. Yes. Um, the, the thing I did like about Texas is how inclusive at least Houston was of uh, mm. Latino communities and Latinx mm. communities. And yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but as a whole, it's not, you know, we had a house yeah. in Umble and it was like the wild, wild west out there. And that's like 15 minutes from Houston. So yeah, it's really mm. scary how, how this can just go back and forth. Um, let's talk about the unicorn authors club how did that begin? And tell, because there's a lot of people that watch this. They may not watch it live, but they're going to watch it later. And I really want them to know about this because like I said, I um, am working on a screenplay and a play right now. And I got a coach and I had mm -hmm. to talk to a bunch of different, it's not easy to find a good coach. Yeah. It's just not much yeah. less a collective of writers of color. So talk, yes. talk to the audience about what this is. Yes. Yeah, so, well, I, um, after, after Leaving India came out um, in 2009, I just had a kind of trickle of friends or friends of friends who heard about the book and said, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to put together a book and I'm a little lost and can you help me with it? And so uh, I started kind of doing that, realizing that I really liked it. And then um, a friend said, well, you know, what you're doing is called coaching and um, <laughs> you shouldn't just give it away. Yeah. And so I started working with people and just really feeling it out. So my, I think my first coaching client, um, I was like, well, how does $35 an hour sound? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I think we could do that. So so we worked it Yo, out. Um, yeah. yeah. And well, I mean, I was very much learning, so she was a guinea pig too. Um, yeah. And um, and then over time, I started to feel more confident in it and also started to teach courses. Um, and then when I moved to Bangalore, I was doing it online via Skype. Um, and it was really interesting because I was one of very few people who was trying to coach and teach writing online almost I think no other women people of color that I recall at that time were doing it and so most people were uh really wanting to meet their coach in person as I had done with my coach when I was writing my book and go to writing classes in person um as I had also done and so it was a very small kind of very niche thing that I was doing 
Um, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> a little, a little yeah. bit. I mean, I taught my first writing class online via a Google group listserv. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my writing from the chakras course, um, which I'm also now turning into a book, which I'm excited about. Um, and I have to do a little work on that proposal. <laughs> and, um, and uh, so, and that was great, actually. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed having that way of staying in touch also with writers around the world that were my clients. Um, and then when I moved back to the U.S., I was there was some scope for teaching in person and coaching in person, but really most of my folks were already online with me, and that was fine. And then when the pandemic hit, um, all of a sudden, everything was online. And wow. I started getting calls from friends saying, you know, my writing group, we used to meet in person at so-and-so's house, but um, now we can't. Can you can you come and facilitate and help us and help us figure out how to do this online and what we what's even possible online? And so I started doing a lot of pro bono, um, just, you know, helping people out. And I did something with um, Zora's house in Columbia, and, sorry, in Columbus, Ohio, and with a group of writers in Atlanta and so on. And um, and it was wonderful. And then about uh, hmm, four or five months into the pandemic, I was like, oh, really kind of getting a little exhausted. <laughs> and then I started running my numbers and I was like, oh, that's because I've worked with 152 writers online for free wow. over the last four months. So now let's think about, it doesn't wow. look like this pandemic is going anywhere. And um, what can we do that's gonna be more sustainable? And I had wanted- You're like the time. public defender of coaches. You get, <laughs> you know, I always say I could never be a private attorney because I'd be working for tamales and- uh, yeah. Yeah. And Diet Cokes, like I can't take yeah. money from people. But I think it's important that you did take that experience where you gave away this and I mean, to the greater good. But yeah. how did you decide that you're going to monetize this? Well, actually, I had always for the for several years, I've been thinking that I wanted to move out of the individual coaching model, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there was a thing that happened. Um that made me a little uncomfortable, which was that it fostered a dependency. Yeah. Um, and so people would meet with me, they'd have a great session, and then they'd go off and um, they'd kind of be like at this high point after the session, and then it would trickle down, and then mm -hmm. they would sort of go, oh, I need to talk to you again. And then I would kind of, you know, restore some confidence, restore, we'd, we'd recenter them on their project, we'd restore, and then they would come back to another place and then kind of trickle off unless they had some kind of system of support in between coaching sessions. And the people who had that, who had a really good writing group or, um, you know, a, even a writing buddy, someone they met up wow. with and wrote with, whatever, they had a much more stable experience with coaching. The people who didn't have that at all, it was it was kind of a roller coaster and yeah. I was not comfortable with kind of being the only point of I, I I've never wanted to be like somebody's savior or somebody's mm -hmm. guru or whatever. You know, I'm not like trying to make a yeah. cult. Um so yeah. I I thought, you know, what if there was a way for my folks to be able to support each other in between wow. their coaching sessions? So that's where that had been the seed of the idea. And then 
um, with the pandemic, all of a sudden, everybody in the world knew how to use Zoom. And, and it seemed like, oh, okay, now I don't have to do this this work of persuading people that working online could be a good thing because mm-hmm. that's, that's all we have. No one has a choice about that. So, right. um, and you're stuck at home. <laughs> and we're stuck at home. And yeah. I was noticing that writers were already really within, you know, a week or two of the pandemic starting, writers started to create spontaneously lots of meetups and lots of structures. So there was already a lot of support going on. And I felt I felt very comfortable that I wouldn't be kind of like the only choice for somebody um, Mm -hmm. that I could offer something that was really holistic. And the way that it works that I've been so happy about is that um, folks get their individual coaching with me. They also get group coaching sessions where we all talk together and brainstorm together. So if you have a problem in your writing, you can bring it to the group and we call it solve your story and we help you. Um, and we try to iron it out um, and give you something to go on. And then we also have co-writing times and a monthly craft talk that I give or that a guest speaker gives. Um, And so what's really great is that everyone is having the same vocabulary um, because the other thing that used to happen is like, and that still happens sometimes is if you just have a coach then, and you have a writing group, then your coach knows kind of what they've said, but your writing crew doesn't really know what your coach is all about. And then your coach doesn't know what feedback your writing group is giving you. And then you take a class and nobody knows, you know, only you know what that instructor has said. And then you're, as the writer, you're kind of translating and trying to like digest all of this input into something useful for yourself versus everybody having a shared vocabulary. And the the vocabulary that we have in the way that we work with folks is that we talk about a three-part um, support structure. So we think that there are three things that you need in order to write a book. You need to have your story and you need to have support around what is actually the content of your book, right? Um, like whose point of view is it? What What's the time frame of it? What are the settings? What's the genre even? All those decisions. Present the tense, story. past tense. Exactly. The First person, third person. <laughs> yes, all of that. So all of that Loaded is both. story yeah. and stuff, you know, that you, there are 10 million decisions to make in the course of writing a book. And so that's the story work. And then there's skills. So sometimes there's something mm. you just don't know how to do. Like I might say, Crap. Oh, you know yeah. what? I'm really bad at dialogue. I got to learn something about that. I need some exercises. I need to work on that. So sometimes there's some skill building. Um, and then there's the third part, which we call sanctuary, mm. which is your writing process. Uh. And that is the part that is the secret sauce that underlies everything, which is when I, uh, yeah, because when you sit down to write, what happens? Mm -hmm. What happens? (laughs) Because if that is not happening, then it doesn't even matter how great of a writer you are or what a brilliant story you have or anything. If you can't, if you don't have a process that is going to be sustainable for you over the course of time that it takes to write a whole book, then there's no book. There's no book without you feeling safe enough to write the book. 
Wow. You, you know, I'm getting goosebumps because it reminds me almost of a recovery model in the sense that I've been leaning, I've been learning about holistic defense and trying to give my clients more of a holistic approach. And when they're in, and it's like, you got to give people a safe place to be, right? Mm. And then this idea of craft or craft versus talent mm -hmm. is something I've been thinking about a lot. Because when I was very young in my 20s, I was writing at a community college and this professor tore this white professor told mm. me I was melodramatic, dramatic, mm. that my work was not good. And he just marked it up with red pen and I didn't write for 10 years. Mm. And, mm. and I really am working on this article about that issue, how mm. important talent is and that we cannot squash people's talent and potential with mm -hmm. our need for craft because that's what yeah. school and workshopping and coaching is for and yeah. that you know i think that's why most bands first albums are their best bands because they're not mm. their best album they're not overwrought they're not mm. they're raw they're honest and there's some they have something to say which is yeah. the most important thing you yeah. can learn craft but you yeah. can't you can't make a voice up right yeah yeah and I think that's so interesting. I'm excited to read your article because I think that sometimes talent is used in actually the wrong way. You know, it's used, it's a really, um, it can be a really lazy way to describe people's right. writing. And I especially see it used by, it, first of all, it can be a, a screen for privilege Right. Um, right. It can be like, oh, that person's talented. Well, are they or did they just um, have a lot of help at certain points? Yeah. And then is their uncle can, director or whatever it is. Right. 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 And, or were they encouraged um, to be imaginative in a certain way or something like that? And then it's also a thing that I see. I see teacher creative writing teachers who don't really know how to teach. Um are often drawn to the talent in the room, right? Because right? they're drawn to the people who are already, already have something and are already likely to succeed. And to me, that's a really lazy way of teaching. Um, I think you have to be able to teach everybody wherever they are and see the talent in everybody. Exactly. And then you can see that like some people, yes, that person's talented and, you know, they obviously had an education in standard English and whatever. And so their sentences are not gonna hit any roadblocks on the on the way. But there can be another kind of talent that is like, wow, that person has such a, um, a clear sense of character and of language that characters use. And there's no substitute for that. There's mm -hmm. like someone who really has an ear for voice um, and for for dialogue, for dialogue. That, right? That it. I don't even care if they know anything about punctuation because I can hear people, not characters. I can hear humans popping off the page wow. in their in their work, and that kind of talent is also important. Like there's for for a million writers, there's a million kinds of talent, and I think as a as a coach, it's so exciting to be able to see that and to then build the book around what is that talent that you have? What is that skill set and that strength that you already have? So that it's not, we're not always coming at it. So much of education is coming from a deficit model, right? right. Which is like, how can we fix and standardize and 
fit the the awkward rightly shaped weird cool amoeba octopus person into this like square box um but with writers that's the opposite like i really want people to have all of their quirks and weirdness and and language use and all of that and then build their project from that gorgeous and unique and original uh, foundation it's everything right yeah yeah and to foster that i remember someone telling me and this kind of hurt my feelings, but I, I agree with them now, years later. You're not the best writer, but you're really hardworking and you're going to do fine as a writer when you really, you know. Do, and I think hard work, potential, and a voice, for me, are the three most important things. Do you have that mm. work ethic? Do you have that voice, whatever it is? Like mine is blue collar, half Latina, half white, punk rock girl thing. You have your voice. That is the most important thing. The education helps. The craft helps. But I'd rather read someone's first story with mistakes or punctuation or maybe that this not isn't right or that's not right or it's a little disorganized with, like you said, really strong character voices of their mother mm -hmm. or their father. Well, and it goes yeah. back to what you said at the beginning um, about, you know, just the thing that you're ashamed of or the thing that you've been put down for. Often that really is the strength. Mm. I remember when I was when I was talking to agents about leaving India and it was kind of this this moment in the publishing industry because. Jhumpa Lahiri had just won the Pulitzer. Oh, and her. so everyone was like, oh, let's find an Indian writer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I ended up talking to four different agents. Um, and one of them, he was he was a sort of like old school New Yorker kind of guy. And if I could do accents, I'd be super entertaining <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> I'm not very good at accents. But he was like, oh, yeah, good, good, good. This is very good. You know, he said, one one problem only, just one problem. I said, okay, what is it? He <laughs> said, well, a lot of characters, a lot of characters, very long names, very long names. Anything we can do about that? <laughs> I don't think so. Not really. <laughs> Not really, no. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important that, like you said, providing that sanctuary. So how does it work? Like, how would someone, like, tell my viewers about how you would get involved if you wanted to get more information about Unicorn Authors oh, Club? Sure. Um, so we have a website. It's called unicornauthors.club. And um, you can go there. You can check out all the information, uh, FAQs, what's inside, what you get, etc. And then you can sign up for either four months or a year. Um, and uh, that's it. And then we bring you in and then you're a unicorn. Oh. <laughs> and we have we have a beautiful platform that um, holds a lot of curriculum archive of all our past talks so we have which is great so we have i do craft talks on different things like time and how to manage time in your manuscript and how to decide the time frame and um how to handle flashbacks and stuff like that and then there's a talk oh, on that's audience really hard actually yeah it's really yeah. hard yeah and then like there's a talk on audience how to know how to how to hone in on who your audience is how not to worry about the, the wrong audience, the hostile mm. audience, all of that kind of stuff, um, what's important and what's not, and think about audience. So all kinds of talks. Um, at this point, two years worth of talks uh, on topics. And then we have guest talks that are in there. So we've had, like, Daisy Hernandez has come in and talked about 
her beautiful book, The Kissing Bug, which has won all kinds of prizes in the last six months. And um, I love her other book, uh, Glass, uh-huh, A Cup of Water, cup under, of water under, your under, the, under Your Bed. Yes, oh. yes. So Amazing. she gave us some great insight about structure. And then Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarinsa just came in January and gave a talk about cripping the writing life and how to work when you have really uh, limited or uh, up and down energy. Um, mm. So um, yeah, so we just have had um, been really lucky to have a range of speakers as well. And so you get all of that. And then, but really the core of it is that you get the individual and um, community coaching that is really about you and your manuscript and where you are right now. And at the beginning, you come in, you, you have a coaching session where you set a goal for what you want to accomplish in your four months. And then we give you all kinds of sport to make sure that you get to that goal. Wow. Um, and we have co-writing times three times a week. Um, and the club is open to writers of color and what I call allies who really mean it. <laughs> yeah. So we have white folks who are really wonderful allies. And um, That's it's, great. we keep it at about 75% writers of color. Um, about a third of our writers are living with disability or chronic illness. About a half of our writers are queer uh, or trans. Oh. And so we have a really beautiful, warm, and loving community. Oh, and the community. thing that I wanted to announce, um, so we have two kinds of coaching that you get when you um, when you join the club. There is book coaching, which is um, me or another coach who's published books. And then there's sanctuary coaching, which is right now done by two of our team members, Rachel and Camila, who have developed this beautiful way of coaching around process and walking you through um, some things around just figuring out like what are your recurring doubts or fears? What is stopping you? Where is your process not as lovely as you would like it to be? How can we bring more ease and pleasure to your writing process? Um, and wow. we are starting very soon a training program for writers of color and writing coaches of color who want to learn this sanctuary coaching process, oh, wow. either to use with their own clients or um, possibly to come in and work with us because we are growing and we need more coaches. <laughs> so we'll be hiring out of that program um, and also offering the training for folks to use in whatever circumstance they want. So I'm very excited about it because I think as writers of color, um, we need we all need more support for one thing. So it'll be beautiful to be able to have uh, trained cohorts of folks um, who can give that support. And also we need livelihoods and coaching for me yep. has been a really beautiful way to have a livelihood as a writer that does not depend on my writing selling um, yep. and being in the market at any given point, And also that doesn't depend on um, work that is really intensive on my body. Yep. Uh, I used to be an editor and that, that keyboard life um, just, I had recurring pain in my arms and chronic, yep. um, chronic strain injuries and um, just couldn't, couldn't really grains. live with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, um, so I think it's really important for us as writers to have a range of ways to make a livelihood and also to have some options outside the kind of academic industrial complex, yep. right? Which is like give training people and um, and also not having enough jobs and have or having really exploitative yep. adjunct level kind of jobs. 
100 percent. yeah that's wonderful you've crafted this whole community and i live the idea that it's primarily people of color but also you know you do allow allies in macondo a group i'm part of does that you know mm-hmm. people think it's just latino it's not we do allow uh allies who are social justice orientated in as well and i think yeah. it's important that we you know that we focus on writers of color but that we also bring in these other people to you know so that they can learn too and uh be more of an ally um so l- let me ask you this um isn't there a showcase or something coming up yes oh my gosh thank you for remembering well, I, so I so we have one of our um one of our beautiful projects has been a, a partnership with an organization called Narrative Initiative. Uh, so Rinku Sen, who is this really wonderful visionary uh, organizer and leader in various social justice movements, um, was one of our first members in the Unicorn Authors Club. And um, then she, as in her capacity as um, executive director of the Narrative Initiative, uh, approached me about partnering to create a year-long cohort for um, writers who are social justice movement leaders, organizers, um, to come into the club, get a whole year of support to write their book. Um, And so we started that program last, uh, last March, and that first cohort is really exciting, and they are graduating um, on March 1st, we're going to have a public open showcase. It'll be at 5 p.m. Pacific time, just an hour and two minute readings. And uh, there are 19 members of that cohort. Each one of them is amazing. Each of their books is going to be amazing. Um, one of them has already gotten an agent and a book contract um, for a book out of their work so far. Um, Another one is about to turn in her manuscript to her publisher uh, that she had lined up prior to the cohort. Uh, A whole bunch of others have their book proposals ready and they're getting ready to go out there with them. Um, There's one person who wrote her entire draft of her memoir. um, Wow. So... um, And when is this showcase? So it is on March 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And it'll be on Zoom. And uh, I think the best way to get connected to that is to join our mailing list. Okay. Um, so you can do that at the website or just email us at hello at unicornauthors.club and we'll add you to the okay. invite list. And everyone um, on Life of Gem, I will put the link up to that on my page this week. So that you, because uh, I'm going to watch it. I'm so excited to watch it. It's this. a great way to also learn more if you are a person who is interested in applying for that program um, when it comes around again. And okay. there will be a big uh, kind of launch event for that in April and then an application period in the late spring, early summer for that okay. program. Um, so we're still figuring out some details about that. But yeah, so for social justice um, movement leaders and organizers and people who do just really amazing, beautiful community work, um, this program is for you and it is uh, totally free. There's also a small stipend. Um, And we also from time to time have scholarships for the regular club um, that are uh, mostly given to us by uh, alumni and oh, wow. um, and and other, yeah, other coaching clients of mine. So, um, yeah, people who just want to open the opportunity to 
as broad a pool as possible. So we have four scholarship folks in at the moment, and it's really always just such a pleasure to work with. Um, what I like about this new kind of model is that it's focused on the book, right? And it's not like yeah. this MFA program, which I'm in a low res right. MFA program just for me. I love mm -hmm. it, but mm -hmm. it's not book focused. It's piece yeah. focused. And the problem with that is that you could do that for years, right? Part time yeah. and never get your book done. Yeah. And the other thing that I think distinguishes us is that it's not workshop based. So right. there is an option to workshop with your peers, but the core of our curriculum is not peer feedback. Wow. Um, and that's because I really feel strongly that there's a place for peer feedback mm -hmm. and it is not the best way to learn. It's sort of like, you know, if you wanted to become a lawyer by sitting around with other law students and being like, huh, wonder what this section of the, you know who passed the bar exam? 504.3 means. <laughs> it, it's my pet peeve because the people I know that studied in groups for the bar exam did not pass. I really? studied That's alone. So I focused on it. I sat at the Starbucks with one other person, eight to 10 hours a day. We didn't interact too much. We just studied together. And I passed Texas, then California first time. And all Amazing. these people that have these groups and everyone's hitting ideas off each other, that is not the way to learn or sometimes get a job done. You need to well, sit there, your ass on in the chair and do the work. And whether you did or didn't, you still mm -hmm. had professors. You still had right. a, like you still had somebody actually who knew telling right. you something. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, yeah. I and you know, I I've learned as a 50 almost 50, no, I'm, I'm 51 now, year old writer that um, in my workshops, I know what to just disregard. I don't take yeah. it personally. I don't yeah. let them influence me. If I, if I know what I'm doing, great. And there's some people that give me great feedback. There's other people, they don't know sh shit from Shinola about my work. And I could really care less what they right. have to say. And it's not that I don't like them or anything. It's just like, oh, I just, I literally just throw their opinion away and never look at their comments. Because right. I don't agree also, with them. They might not be your audience. You exactly. know, we have we have a huge diversity. I mean, it's so exciting to me the range of things that mm -hmm. writers of color are doing. Um, right. And you, you know, someone who's doing like Afrofuturist cyberpunk, and someone who's doing like, you know, uh, traditional nonfiction yeah. yeah. history book. Like they may really groove on each other's work or they may be like, you are what we have in common is we both put words onto pages, yeah. but there's not really necessarily, you know, so I think that workshops um, can be really good if all the people in them are mature and also aware of kind of what, what they're really looking for with yeah. feedback and, and the workshopping tool um, that we use. We had Felicia Rose Chavez mm. come in and do a training for us um, from her book, The Anti-Racist Writers Workshop. And that is really great. Um, mm. And her toolbox for that is really good. So I always recommend that. Book, okay. Um, I'm going to get that for book. writers. Oh, it's so good. And the other thing I love about it is that it has a very uh, clear critique of the, of the whole MFA um, structure that lots of writers of color have been critiquing over the last several years. And yeah. so it's it's a good um, it's a really good tool for anyone really anyone actually who wants to workshop in a way that is healthy. Yep. 
Well, thank you. I just have mm -hmm. to thank you for coming on. I'm going to put all these links up on my page. Thank but... you for having me. It's such a pleasure to connect with you and um, and this beautiful Life of Gem Empire that you've created. It's lovely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try. You know, it the, the to have your voice break through, that's the hard part on this kind of thing. But I just do it because I love it. And I love giving other people information like about your Writers Club that I mean, it's really important that people know these structures exist and this this community exists, because even if you can't afford it, you can try to do something, you know, on your own. That's less about the dominant narrative, you know. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and that's why I I also like our website has everything on it that you would need to replicate this on your own, because not everybody uh, needs to or wants to or can afford to be in a program like ours. But I am really happy to share, like, these are the pieces Fantastic. that we have in place and you can totally DIY it yourself and it could be great and it could be even better for you if you want to do it that way. And if you want it done for you and available uh, for you, then here's this option. Fantastic. And everyone check out the showcase, go to the Unicorn um, Authors Club click on their joint, their mailing list so that you can get information about this showcase that's going to be on March 1st at 5 p.m. on Zoom. Um, I just want to do a shout out to Christian Livermore, who wrote this fantastic book that Juno Diaz um, actually uh, blurbed called We Are Not Okay. It's about poverty. This is Christian Livermore. She's going to be on my show in two weeks on February 15th. Mm -hmm. And it's a memoir and essays. And it's all about poverty, which I love blue collar writing and this is even just so much more specific. I'd also ask everyone to check out who are local to the Inland Empire, the Culver Art Museum, the Sunday in Riverside for an Inlandia reading um, headed by James Coates called Black Dads Who Write. That's at 1.30 at the Culver Center, 1.30 p.m. There's going to be live writers. There's going to be a pre uh reading dance reception where people are going to do some performances so that's going to be interesting too so everyone check out the unicorn authors club all of me now's beautiful and powerful and important work works i'm gonna put all the links up there i mean this is a person who has inspired me who is such an amazing coach writer teacher facilitator so thank you for coming on i i'm so honored to have you on i'm getting emotional because i really I, it's like a dream to have you on thank you Oh, thank you, my love. And you're so generous with all of your information. And I, like I said, everyone, go to the Unicorn Club. Check it out. Bye.